Hello, uh, and welcome to this slightly ambitiously titled Fringe event after the pandemic. Let's, let's hope we're right on that. Um, on long-term health and social care funding challenges. Uh, so I'm Graham Atkins. I'm an Associate Director at the Institute for Government. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us for this event, which has kindly been supported by the Health Foundation. So over the past 18 months, the pandemic has hit health and care services hard. The NHS has had to redeploy the vast majority of staff twice during both the first and the third waves of the pandemic to staff intensive care units to respond to COVID. And even in the periods where it's been less intense, in operating with enhanced infection control and really able to provide much less than usual. And really the consequence of this is that there's a lot of care that's gone unprovided and a lot of large backlogs that we now face. And as of July this year, there were 5.6 million people waiting for an elective operation. And in fact, probably a great deal more when you take into account those who haven't come forward for care. But even before the pandemic, the NHS in England had a large number of vacancies, was in, in, undertaking an increasing number of operations, and had routinely been missing uh, waiting time targets by increasingly large margins. So what can be done? How much money would it take to catch up with waiting lists? Does the UK need a, resilient more, a more resilient NHS? And how might all of these things be paid for? To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by a great panel who have a wealth of experience. First up, we have Anita Charlesworth, who's Director of Research uh, at the Real Centre at the Health Foundation, has spent a lot of time thinking about health economics and related issues. Uh, second, we have Gemma Tetlow, who's Chief Economist at the Institute for Government, um, has also spent a lot of time thinking about public finances. Uh, third, we have Sarah Neville, who's Global Health Editor at the Financial Times, has done a lot of coverage of the pandemic over the past 18 months. And before, we have Justin Mathers, the Shadow Health Minister, who's, I'm sure, spent perhaps more time than anyone on this panel thinking about uh, the NHS and health and care. So after opening remarks uh, from each of the panellists, I'm going to pose a few questions before we open it up to a Q&A and aim to kind of close the event down just after four. Uh, so three brief housekeeping arrangements. This is a public event which is on the record, so please remember that when you ask a question. Um, we'll be live tweeting along from at IFG events using the hashtag IFGLab21, so please do follow along. Uh, and an audio and a video recording will be available uh, for all of those who want to share this event afterwards uh, on our website. So to kick off, um, it's been an extremely challenging 18 months. Anita, what is the outlook for health and social care spending? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I, I guess it's worth saying, obviously, that, that over the last 18 months, you know, the government has spent a huge amount more on um, health care. Uh, but obviously, a lot of that on uh, one-offs, so test and trace, PPE, things like that. Um, and they're obviously, you know, we're all hoping that the pandemic comes to an end. But actually, I think it's increasingly clear the, the pandemic is going to leave a legacy for the NHS and care system for very many years to come. And that will have a bill attached to it. And I think, in essence, there are three elements. And there's obviously a massive amount of uncertainty as we go from the pandemic phase of COVID to endemic, and we hope there's no um, new variant you know, that evades the vaccine. So um, leaving aside the fact that there's massive uncertainty, um, there are three things that will really influence how much we need to spend over the coming years. 
One is the size of the backlog in care that we face and how ambitious we are as a society to deal with that backlog. Um, and I'll say a bit more about that in a second. The second thing is how we um, run the NHS services clinically. So the pandemic has meant that health services have had to be radically reorganised, particularly because of the needs for infection control and social distancing. And that means you need a lot more resources to deliver the same care. So just a minor example, I had an endoscope two weeks ago, and normally, so I have a long-term condition normally, I have the endoscope as about a three-minute thing within my consultant consultation. He and I had to go down a floor for the endoscope. We had to enter a different room. He had to go and get fully kitted up. He had to bring in the kit. Then we had to go back upstairs, and the room had to be cleaned. Yeah, So that is way more resources to deliver the same uh, procedure. That's writ large across all of the NHS. If that continues, that has a big impact on the capacity we have and the services we need. And the third thing that I think it's really important that we start to think especially about, especially when we get the COVID inquiry, is the question of resilience. Yeah, so we went into COVID with a system that runs incredibly hot on the edge of capacity. You know, we have very few beds, very few doctors, very few nurses, very few scanners compared to any other developed healthcare uh, uh, system. Um, and, and we kind of hope and pray that we just about get through. And most winters, that's really tough. But, you know, actually it left us very exposed come the pandemic. And there's a big question, you know, do we want to be in that sort of situation again? Or do we actually want a health service that's got more uh, uh, resilience? If so, that will add to cost as well. So <clears throat> all of those things together mean that spending pressures over the next decade and you add those onto the normal run of populations aging, there's more chronic disease, mental health services aren't up to scratch, there's big problems anyway, there were in community and primary care, there's 10 years of cuts to social care to make good. So you add that onto all of that, yeah. <clears throat> and spending pressures over the next decade are likely to be much higher than over uh, recent decades. To give you a sense of the scale of this, though, I'll just give—I'll give one figure because you can—you can drown in figures, and I mean this one I think is big enough. Um, let's take the waiting list. Yeah, so there are 5.6 million people currently waiting for care. A third of them um, eight, more than 18 weeks, and around 300,000 over a year. <clears throat> yeah, that's a big, big, big problem. But actually, there are almost 8 million people who we would have expected to come forward for care during the pandemic who haven't. Now, some of those won't need care. It was a condition that has actually, it turns out, got better by itself. Sadly, some people will have died. But very many of those people are walking around or not walking around, you know, have got healthcare problems that, will, that, that need treatment and they will need to come back into our system. So if, if three quarters of those come back, and no one quite knows how many, but if three quarters of those come back, then um, to get to a situation by the next, just around the next election, when um, all of those people were being met, seen within 18 weeks again, that would cost 17, I'll say that again, 17 billion pounds. Yeah? 
Now, to be in a position come the next general election where the waiting list wasn't any worse than 5.6 million people, you need to spend 13.3 billion pounds. Government with the new NHS and care levy has earmarked 10 billion pounds. So even with if in a situation where you're spending 10 billion pounds, which is a huge sum of money, you know, in anyone's book, on waiting times, the likelihood is that we'll go into the next general election with the waiting list significantly bigger than the 5.6 million, which is already unprecedented. So I, I think the scale of the challenge is huge. Uh, what I worry about, and I, I, I think this is something that it's important for people to start to think about, is that if that's the situation in our NHS, that it is so at the limit of capacity, that people are waiting so long, will people conclude, not that we've not enough funding, that we've not enough staff, but that the model is at fault? And I think it's very important uh, that we think about over the next couple of years how we have the conversation with people about the nature of the pressures and the reasons for those so people don't falsely conclude that the problem is that a free at the point of use NHS is no longer relevant or affordable. It is never more relevant and it is affordable if we choose to. Thanks, Anita. I think that really nicely sets up the, the scale of the challenge. Um, Gemma, I mean, over the next couple of years, the government's going to set out its spending plans. Some of them, Anita's already outlined for the NHS. But what's what's the wider fiscal picture? What can we expect uh, for other public services over the next few years? Sure. Um, well, I think looking at the wider picture, unfortunately, doesn't offer any easy answers to the mm -hmm. challenge that Anita has set out about the need for potentially extra funding for health and care services. The picture is that even uh, if the economy bounces back and recovers most of the lost ground in terms of economic output during the pandemic, which is the current forecast from the Office of Budget Responsibility, and even factoring in the relatively large tax increases that this government has already announced, which are the largest uh, set of tax rises that any government has announced since the late 1970s, um, that puts us in a position where we're still facing in the spending review pretty tight settlement for other departments outside of the NHS and social care, aid and defence and schools, which have already been allocated. Um, it's not as tight a spending plan as we had in the 2010 spending review or the 2015 spending review. So there is more money. There will be real terms increases over the three years. But actually, the next two years in particular look pretty tight for those other services. Um, and there are obviously pressures uh, that exist in those other services akin to some of the post-pandemic issues that are showing up in health and care services as well. So um, based on the analysis we've been doing this year for our performance tracker, which is our sort of annual stock take, <coughs> sorry, on the performance of public services, um, there are various themes that seem to be sort of common across quite a lot of those other service areas. Um, there are There are backlogs and le legacies of COVID in many areas. We have the this kind of catch-up of school schooling that people have missed. Some money has gone to do that, but not enough to fully catch up on the lost schooling that many children have experienced. Uh, there's a big backlog of cases in the courts at the moment, and money hasn't yet been allocated to, well, money, and it's not just a question of money in lots of these cases, it's a question of finding the qualified staff and facilities to allow you to address these backlogs, particularly in things like the courts. Um, and children's social care services, for example, didn't see as many children being referred during the pandemic. And so a concern there, there's also a 
a backlog of children who may be in more severe need of care now than they would have been had they been seen in a more timely fashion. Um, there are issues of recruitment and retention across quite a lot of public services. Many of this was apparent before the pandemic. Actually, the pandemic somewhat eased those pressures because job opportunities in the private sector were so poor that many people either stayed or applied for jobs in the public sector. But we're already starting to see that effect unwinding um, and the desire to recruit more police officers, more prison officers, more teachers um, raise questions about how you do that. Um, and in the past, government's answer to cutting public spending has often been to have public sector pay restraint and that looks much less likely to be possible as an answer this time around um, given years of restraint already. Um, some services are also coming out of this pandemic in a worse financially resilient position than they went into it because they've had to use uh, reserves that were built up pre-pandemic to pay for some of the pandemic costs. So, for example, schools uh, in the first instance were asked to use their reserves to pay for the extra pandemic costs before the government then stepped in. Um, and for local authorities, whilst in aggregate, the government uh, gave enough money to cover most of the extra costs faced, actually, that that isn't true at an individual local authority level, that it hasn't always gone to the right places. So some local authorities are in a much, in a weaker financial position than they were. Um, I think perhaps the one sort of positive of the, our analysis of performance cross services is that pandemic has prompted new ways of working, using technology in a smarter way, um, doing things differently. So I think if there's one sort of small shining positive light from um, the pandemic, it's that it has prompted um, trying to do things differently. But one challenge as we come out of the pandemic, particularly as resources are stretched and services are stretched, is how do we embed those new ways of working that have worked and make the most of them, um, but at the same time revert to old practices where actually those uh, alternative ways of working were not uh, appropriate to be continued with. Great. Thanks, Gemma. It's, it's nice to end on a uh, nice to end on a slightly optimistic note. Um, broadly speaking, I suppose not a rosy picture for the NHS or, or some other public services. So, Sarah, I want to I want to pose quite a practical question to you. There are a lot of staff vacancies. There are still bed shortages. A lot of NHS capacity is being used to care for COVID patients. Could any government actually tackle the challenges facing health and social care at the minute? Well, it would be very easy to despair, I think. After all, we spend about a fifth of all public expenditure on the NHS, but still, as Anita said, we went into this pandemic with an NHS which was a monument to a system that's always been run with a far greater focus on value for money than resilience. Um, so, yes, there's lots of reasons for um, pessimism, but in fact, I'm going to strike two notes of optimism. And one, I'm actually going to take issue with you, Anita, on the, on the model and how vulnerable the model might be. Because what's really struck me over this period of the pandemic, and particularly the last few months, when there's been a lot of debate about how we're going to raise extra money for the NHS, actually, <coughs> nobody in the government has seriously questioned the model. It was just a question of which particular tax would be used to raise the money. There was no talk of insurance or co-pays. Um, whereas 20 years ago, the last time we had waiting lists of this magnitude, some quite serious mainstream voices were asking those questions. So for me, this feels like a battle that has been won. And when I look around the world with my sort of global health editor hat on, I can see a number of other countries similarly have taken the lesson from this pandemic that we need 
to pour more money into publicly funded care. South Africa, Ireland, Cyprus, the US, they're all building up their publicly funded systems. So um, I hope I'm not being overly optimistic, but that, that is something I'll take positively um, from these last few months. And the other thing, Gemma's touched on it, is I think there's so much more potential for the NHS to be run sort of smarter and more efficiently. Gemma mentioned technology. We've got all the huge advantages still not fully leveraged of genomics and precision medicine. Uh, you know, remote care, as you say, Gemma, looks as if it has become, you know, one would think permanently a part of not just general practice, but outpatient appointments. I don't think we're ever going to go back to the old model of having to sit on a hard chair in a waiting room for an hour to see a consultant for five minutes. You know, we're going to see that consultant in many instances over Zoom for five minutes. So, and I think the other really fascinating thing legacy of COVID is that we now have this huge network of laboratories. As we know, the whole um, issue of testing for COVID was very, very fraught, and it took a long time for this country to really get up to speed on that. But we do now have this massive infrastructure. And I think that could form the basis of a sort of much more diagnostically led NHS, when in the future, perhaps we're all very routinely getting blood tests, it will require the pharma companies to come up with the biomarkers and the, the drugs, but that we might routinely be um, being checked for early signs of cancer. You know, the Grail test, uh, it was announced, wasn't it, a couple of weeks ago, oh. is being now piloted, the, piloted in the NHS. So um, I am uh, going to, uh, yes, really strike a, an optimistic note. <laughs> Maybe one of the few today. <laughs> Great, uh, thanks, Sarah. That's a uh, useful note of course. So, I think then, Justin, the question I'd put to you is given these challenges and these opportunities the rest of the panel have outlined, if, if Labour in government, what would your health and care priorities be for spending with you? Well, um, can, I, can I just say I'm glad Sarah spoke on because I was just about to leave. It, it was just so, <laughs> so de depressing to, to hear. Um, but I, I mean, it is it is a I mean a reality. But I, I, when I was um, thinking about about what I was going to say, I actually reflected back on um, the last piece of legislation I did before the pandemic, which was the NHS long term uh, plan bill, which. Um, I think lasted about a month, um, and, and when, when you look back now, um, the idea that we, we were planning uh, multi-year funding settlements for the NHS on the eve of the pandemic seems uh, somewhat um, uh, unnecessary. Um, even even though there were um, some increases there, we actually still knew that what was on the table was about one percent less than was needed just to, just to stay still. So um, we. I think we started from from a very poor position, and I think this point about resilience is really important. What what, what we see really is uh, the NHS running on fumes for 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 eighteen months now, and um, that that is very apparent in in the workforce. And um, it, it it's not an exaggeration to say that we are seeing all the signs of, of winter pressures right now, and and we have done over, over the summer. So um, things may well. Um, 
get worse before they get better, and that's that's before you even factor in what what may or may not happen uh, with with COVID. So, uh, you know, we're under no illusions as to the, to, to the scale of the challenge that we face. But I think if we um, were, we're we're looking at um, uh, what our premise would be, there's, I think we we'd start looking at some of the capital issues because we've got a nine billion pound maintenance backlog now, which. Uh, is incredible. And that actually does have an impact on, on patient care. Um, we've also got, of course, 40 or 48 new hospitals that are coming along at some point, um, but no plan to actually address the crumbling estate. And I think that's that's really uh, uh, missing what I think is a, is a really important part of uh, the, the NHS moving forward. We don't even have a, have a you know, strategy from government how to get to net zero in the NHS, which uh, really needs to be addressed. So I think, you know, capital investment has has been neglected for an awful long time. And actually, government have raided that pot on, on numerous occasions. And, and we, we are dealing with the consequences of that now. And I think we will continue to deal with the consequences of that unless it's addressed. I think the the other major area, and, and I think some people touched on this already, is is workforce because it, any government can put in billions and billions of pounds, but actually, if you're relying on a on a workforce that is burnt out, uh, struggling uh, to, to to stay uh, in the job because retention is is an issue, um, you are not going to deliver um, those uh, those desires to actually reduce the waiting list because there simply won't be the people there to do it. So. And Anita and I discussed this this morning. We we think at the moment there is an opportunity in the um, uh, current bill before Parliament to actually just lay down a a clear requirement for the government to have a short, medium, and long term workforce strategy. And until they grasp that nettle, um, we are going to be chasing our tail. So uh, it's not an immediate solution, but I think you have to start dealing with that situation. Much more seriously, and, and I'll just say, say what one of the point reflecting on, on the, the comments in each and Sarah have made about whether the model is questioned. I hope Sarah is right, um, and uh, that, that we don't have those kind of conversations. But I do worry that if we are two, three years down the line and waiting lists have not gone down, in fact, they've probably gone up even higher, and more and more people are reluctantly choosing to, to pay privately, people will begin to question, well, where is this levy going? Is it actually delivering value for money? And I, I, I know at the, at the moment the Conservatives are very keen to be seen as, as the part of the NHS, but we know that actually underneath uh, that is a, is, a, is a real desire to let the market determine. And I think there's a risk that we undermine the whole basis of the model if we don't support it properly now. Great. Thanks, Justin. So I'm now just going to put a couple of questions to the panel before I open it up to a Q&A. And one thing I really wanted to ask actually everyone about was resilience, because it's come up in a few different people's kind of comments. So Anita, perhaps if I start with you, I mean, like in what areas, uh, how has the pandemic, you know, illustrated the need for greater resilience? What should, if you were in charge of the NHS in some ideal world, what would you be prioritising uh, to make the NHS more resilient? 
Yeah. <clears throat> so it's quite interesting, actually, that the you, when you think of resilience, you tend to think of um, capacity in the service. And I, I do think, in particular, that... Um, the science, as I understand it, is that we are more likely, both because of climate change and uh, globalisation, to see, I mean, hopefully nothing on the scale of COVID, but, but to see um, um, health shocks, and we need to plan for that. So that would suggest that demand, pressures on the system are likely to, to surge a bit more and be less predictable. So you would want more uh, uh, doctors and more beds. Um, but you also need to think of resilience. Why did um, the UK have, why have we had such a dreadful um, uh, death toll from COVID? And why did we look so vulnerable? And resilience, health resilience, health resilience comes much broader than just health service resilience. And the great thing about health resilience is that even if you never get another pandemic, it's almost certainly a good thing. So, for example, if we could have a society in which there were less health inequalities, where fewer people were obese and had multiple conditions, that would mean that we had a population that, if a dreadful new disease appeared, would be less vulnerable to that disease. But there's no downside. There's no regret to having a healthier population. It's just all upside, isn't it? So one of the things about resilience is trying to look for how can you invest in things, yeah, which A, make you more prepared, but actually are great anyway. So having a service which actually has embraced new technology and is able to use digital, for example, I mean, you know, that would have been a good thing anyway. Yeah, actually, it's a, it's a great legacy to have now. Why did we need a pandemic for it and have to scrabble to get it in the middle of a crisis? So one of the things I think about building resilience is to think, where can you invest? Where you just get great payoff anyway. You know, but it also does mean that come the shock, you're, you're better prepared. And I think thinking about health and not just health care is, is really, really important. Um, in that as well. Thanks, Anita. I think that's a really interesting distinction between health resilience and healthcare resilience. Sarah, if I could come to you, you mentioned that you know lots of other countries are rethinking the support they give to healthcare in light, in light of the pandemic. So, you know, internationally, when we, we look at other countries, what are they doing to try and improve resilience? Well, I don't know the sort of detail of it, but I do know that they are certainly some of the countries that I mentioned are very much, you know, these are countries which have traditionally relied on private funding of healthcare, and they are all now feeling, you know, that the pandemic has exposed the weakness of that model. I mean, to be fair, some of them, like the United States, as we know, this has been going on since Obamacare was, well, I can't remember when that was, about six years ago or something. Um, there must have been longer than that. Um, uh, so it's not entirely a new thing, but it does... That there's no country which has obviously decided the answer to the pandemic is more private funding. Um, yes, forgive me, Graham. I don't know the details of mm. all the individual systems, but I, I mean, I think your point, Anita, is definitely one that that is shared internationally, though, about the social determinants of health. Mm. And I, I would absolutely endorse what you say that we have to think of when we think about how do you invest to get the biggest return on health, you have to think about housing, you have to 
um, uh, think about you know food security, um, uh, you know early years education. I mean all the sort of amazing work that Michael Marmot's done, where he showed you know through the ten years of austerity how these on so many metrics children's life chances particularly you know diminished so much in terms of children from more deprived backgrounds you know and how they they the sort of start in life they were getting um so so um yeah i would uh, i would definitely agree with you on that great thanks sarah and, and Justin, I thought you made some really interesting points about in capital expenditure, which, which tends to be the kind of uh, the, the lesser known, lesser discussed part of the NHS. I mean, what, uh, you know, capital perhaps aside, what would kind of your priorities be if you were thinking about how to make the health service more resilient? Well, I, I think just just to pick up on on, on what Tanitra and Sarah just said, I think I think there are two there are two elements to this. It, it's actually what what this this pandemic has exposed is that as a society we have problems with resilience because the whole way our economy works um, forces people um, to take risks uh, and do things that, that they, they shouldn't have to uh, and, that, and that has been I'm afraid cruelly exposed over over the last 18 months um, and I think it is it is about wider um, determinants of, of health but in terms of, of, of resilience in, 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 the, in the NHS itself what I think um, we have learned is that you can't do this on the cheap. Um, absolutely, you can't expect a system that is already experiencing record waiting lists, hadn't hit most of its performance targets for half a decade, had had huge sums cut from public health budgets over the previous decade as well. You can't keep doing that without it having consequences. And whilst I would say that the government have um, made a, a whole series of mistakes during pandemic which have made things much worse underneath that were decisions taken during um, the last decade which have exacerbated that um, so I think our our starting point has to be what are we going to do to make sure that we're on a much more secure footing going forward and that that starts with bricks and mortar and then it starts with, and then it's the people who actually deliver the service if we don't fix those things we won't be able to fix anything and I think um, I'm, I'm glad you kind of mentioned that you, uh, this can't be done on the cheap. And I think perhaps one underlying point goes across a lot of this is that we're talking about housing programs, welfare programs, early years programs. These all involve kind of permanently higher spending to kind of make society as a whole more resilient. So, so Gemma, if I could come to you, uh, I mean, perhaps the difficult question, you know, if, if we want to do all of these things, how should uh, how should the government pay for them? Um, I mean, the sort of simple answer to the question is either you have to tax more, borrow more or stop spending on something else. Um, the stop spending on something else answer, um, I mean, I haven't seen the current government articulate what it is that they think the public sector will stop offering um, in order to create free up resources for more spending on health and care. Um, and I'd be interested to hear further discussions at the Labour Party conference, but so far I also haven't heard uh, the Labour Party identifying that. So if we sort of set aside the spend significantly less on something else option, uh, that leaves you with the borrow more or um, tax more options. Um, in terms of borrowing more, we've obviously seen that governments can borrow very large amounts of money in crisis periods. Um, I think there remains a reasonable consensus, uh, I think, from late Richard Reeves' speech uh, yesterday and from the current government's uh, 
probable fiscal rules that they'll firm up in the budget, um, that there is a limit on public borrowing, and particularly if you want to borrow to invest, um, that there is therefore constraints on day-to-day -day public spending and the need to cover that with tax revenues. Um, so turning then to, to tax, um, one thing I was actually really pleased to hear from Rachel Reeves' speech yesterday was starting to set out what does Labour want the tax system to achieve? What are its objectives? Um, which, from our previous uh, work, thinking about how can governments implement more serious tax reform, um, we pointed that as being a really important starting point. To think, what are you trying to achieve with the tax system? And then you can go through, bit by bit, assessing whether the existing tax system really delivers on your objectives. Do tax reliefs, existing tax reliefs, deliver what you wanted? Would there be a more efficient way of doing that within the system? Um, that gives you a really good starting point for then making the case to the public about why are we suggesting these tax changes, which will have some losers, but they'll raise money and actually they achieve a better tax system overall. Um, so I think that's one approach is to be clear about what your objectives are for the tax system and therefore why you're raising particular taxes in favour of others. Uh, and then putting that together with an explanation of what is this money for? Why do we need more money? What are we offering you in return for that? And packaging together the giveaways with the takeaways um, would be my two recommendations for how you should start to approach finding more money. And I, I think we did see this government do that with the health and social care levy. Um, the, I think the unfortunate thing in my mind to that was the need to have it as a new levy rather than simply being able to make the case that our existing big taxes could be raised uh, to pay for extra spending. Great. Thanks, Gemma. I'm just going to put one more question to the panel and then and go to Q&A. So um, resilience and how you pay for it is obviously one big long-term mm -hmm. issue. Obviously, the other short-term one we've talked a bit about is the backlog. I mean, Anita, you gave some very helpful numbers about how much it might cost to address, but I mean, Obviously, a lot of it just depends on your staffing and your capacity. What would it actually take to reduce waiting times to pre-pandemic levels by the time of the next election? Um, an enormous amount of luck. Um, and also, I think, um, essentially, kind of, we're going to have to pull every policy lever in, in the book. So it will need... Um, our estimates are um, over 18,000 more nurses and 4,400 more consultants <clears throat> um that would be very hard to achieve so um we, that would almost certainly require international recruitment persuading staff to work uh, longer hours we're going to have to embrace all the innovation that people were talking about so that we're doing that work as efficiently as uh, as, as possible um two we're also almost certainly if we were going to do that going to need to um use the capacity in the private sector and try to do um, a long-term deal with private hospitals to be able to use their capacity. We've obviously done a deal through COVID to use uh, their uh, uh, capacity as well. So, so that, but um, uh, um, I think there is a real question about whether or not it is actually remotely achievable um, to get back to something like 18 weeks within the next uh, three years. Uh, the NHS is having a look at that and supposed to come up with a plan, I think, by the end of this year to kind of look at that. Um, and I think if it's not achievable, then one of the critical questions um, that's really important then is if people are going to have to wait longer, how do you manage people on the waiting list? One, so that it doesn't exacerbate inequalities. 
because actually waiting lists have risen, if anyone watched Panorama on Monday night, um, waiting lists have risen most um, in more deprived areas, partly because COVID hit most in more deprived um, uh, areas, but, but, but also there is less, for example, private sector capacity in more deprived um, uh, areas. So one question is that. The second thing then is, how do we make sure that there is a proper management of people on the waiting list to help them manage their condition and, and live their life as well as they possibly can? Um, and um, if all of the burden of that falls, as it tends to at the moment, either on people turning up in the GP surgery to go, I still haven't heard, you know, I just can't cope at the moment. GP surgery is also under pressure. Or the other fear, which the College of Emergency Medicine is saying, is then people are turning up in A&E uh, saying, I just can't cope, and A&Es are under enormous pressure. So we are also going to have to plan very carefully if long waits are with us for quite some time how we make sure that it doesn't exacerbate inequalities and how we make sure that we support people so that both they're able to live as good a life as they can, recognising, you know, the huge impact on them. And also it doesn't make the worst problem worse by just popping up in other parts of the system that are also under pressure. Thanks, Anita. I think, I think the, the, the point about the support that people might need on the waiting list is really helpful there. And Justin, I suppose, I've got a question to you. I mean, the other time we had a big war on waiting times was the last time Labour were in government in the 2000s when there was a sustained and fairly successful effort to reduce waiting times. I mean, what, if anything, do you think the current government could, should learn from, from that experience of trying to reduce waiting times in the 2000s? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think what, one thing we, we can probably say in, amongst all the doom and gloom is that we have been here before, not, not quite, I don't think, to the same extent, and we certainly didn't have challenge of COVID, but, but what it did show is that when you've got the entire system focused on a particular uh, target, what, and we'll use the word target because that's, that's, that was really the, the biggest lever of the lot, um, it, it, it did perform. And, um, you know, we, we do have, I think, to get, get into that mindset that the whole system has got to be focused on, on that particular uh, outcome. I think it's, it's harder now, clearly. And um, with the, all the uncertainty around COVID, it's go. You know, it's very easy for that to be blown off course. Um, but you know, if we take a positive from today. We, you know, it, it can be done because we've done it before. Great, uh, that's a really helpful reminder. Um, so I'm now going to turn to questions from the audience. Um, we'll take questions in clusters of three to try and make the process easier and try and get to as many questions as possible. If you have a question, please raise your hand and wait until someone passes you a microphone. If you can and you feel comfortable doing it, please say who you are and if there's a particular panelist you'd like your question to be directed to. Uh, and please, um, please try to keep your question short and to the point so we can get through as many questions as possible. Uh, so if I could start off, the gentleman in the black t-shirt, um, I think I see a hand at the back left, and then uh, the gentleman um, stood to the right. Sorry, my right, Penny, I apologise if that's confusing. <laughs> Well, hello, I'm Mr. Ives, Labour Party member. I've not heard anybody said about the MPs' fiddles of diverting our national insurance money into their mates' pockets. And I think that needs to stop and uh, bring a lot of services back in-house and not let them have a free-for-all at our expense of health and money. And also, if we're in hospital, why on earth do we need a diversity and equality person 
at 80 grand a touch. They need to walk the plank, I would imagine. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew McKenzie from the Physiological Society. Um, I like to talk about resilience, health resilience. I think that's um, really important. Um, and my question is how we change the conversation between, we talk about, and all political parties do it, we talk about investment in healthcare in terms of number of hospitals, number of nurses, number of doctors. But that's very much dealing with the problem once it's occurred rather than stopping the problem happening in the first place. So how do we talk more about investing in preventative healthcare? We had the diabetes prevention program, which was uh, a successful program, but we haven't had many more like that. Um, so how do we change the conversation politically and say, actually, we're going to put more money into stopping people getting ill by investing in our communities? And that might mean there's less money going into hospitals and, and secondary care. Hello, uh, Neil Wigglesworth. I'm a Labour Party member. I'm also a director of infection prevention and control in the NHS, um, but I'm not going to talk about COVID. Um, I just wanted to follow up on Anita's last answer, um, recognising the all the all the important funding priorities that are mentioned: resilience, capital, capacity. I think one's been missed. So, my in my organisation, what's where it is? Uh, in my organisation, a couple of weeks ago, one ward, 30 patients, 20 odd of them waiting for social care packages, medically fit to go home. Social care is broken, and if we don't fund that up front, we can't get the beds, patients into the beds in the first place. They're all full already. Three really interesting questions there. I might take them in reverse order, given that the last one was directed to you, Anita. So uh, what should we do about social care? How much pressure does it put on the NHS? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean you know, clearly, if we think the NHS has had a difficult time in the last decade, yeah, we, we're now spending less in real terms on social care, you know, just pre-pandemic, leaving aside the extra pandemic spend, than we were in 2010-11, despite the ageing of the population and the huge, uh, obviously, issues around um, younger, uh, younger adults. And while doing that, one of the things that I should have said in relation to resilience is that's obviously had an impact on the NHS, although I do, I, I want to say that I think social care matters not primarily because I'm not suggesting you're implying this, but not primarily because it's of impact on the NHS. It matters for the people who need social care to, to live a good life. But we, should, you know, but it is clear that the two services are deeply interconnected. But also the way we have staffed social care was also very clearly a risk factor for the pandemic. So people having to do multiple jobs, the um, issues around short staffing that meant they were bringing in um, uh, staff from all, all, all over, the very high turnover and lack of training, which meant infection control was hard to get off the ground. All of those, you know, fragmentation of the system, so getting PPE out, all that sort of thing, you know, that was writ large in the pandemic, but those are all much, uh, much wider issues. In fact, a lot of people who are waiting in hospital are waiting for services in the community, but they're not just social care services. So the other big thing is, is lack of community nursing, lack of community support uh, uh, as, as well. So, um, so 
one of the problems here clearly is the hospital bit is really visible is really really visible but as you suggest actually it is the tip of the iceberg and um, without those wider um, ser services um, hospitals can't do their their, their job um, and so um, I guess that's the, the the challenge here is almost you kind of where do you start and I think that's that's a big challenge at the moment and with it where do you start you you it feels like everything um, is uh, is is so huge. Um, how do you get into this? But I think where you start has got to be with the workforce, because actually, if you, it, you people know that we won't fix any of this overnight, but if there's actually a credible workforce plan, they can see that there is an answer coming. Then I think they're prepared to stick to stick with it, uh, and we can start to make the changes. And they're willing to engage in some of the innovations and things that you know also are part of the solution. So, um, so it won't be quick, but I would start there. Great. I think there's the second question, which is really about how do you stop problems from building up in the first place? How do you invest in prevention? Um, Gemma, I mean, this is what you've thought about before. Do you want to have a go at that? Sure. On this one. I think it's going to be hard ever to get away from a situation where the public and politicians inevitably focus on the urgent and not necessarily the important. Um, that may just, that's probably something we have to live with and accept will always be part of the system. Um, but there are probably ways that we could make it more apparent what those important issues are uh, that need to be dealt with. And at the moment we have really pretty poor data on what's going on with community care, for example, which Anita talked about. So whereas during the pandemic, we had very, very regular up-to-date figures on waiting lists in hospitals, exactly how many people were in hospital, how many of them had COVID, how many beds were being used. We don't have anything like that granularity of data on community care, and therefore we don't see over time the extent to which those services have been cut back, what demands are being placed on them, what the gaps are there. Um, so one thing I think probably would help with this would be better data collection on those services to make it much more obvious how they're performing, where the gaps are and what's really needed. Great. And coming back to that first question, which I think hopefully I can give a fair summary of, should we be insourcing more and are there opportunities for efficiency in management? Um, Chester, can I put those questions to you? Yeah, well, I think um, I think Rachel Rees set out very well in the speech yesterday that she gave about some of the examples of where um, this government have not use procurement in, in, a, in a way that I think anyone can, can support. Uh, the, the level of cronyism has not uh, served us well at all. And um, it's when you have things like that, that people begin to question um, whether the government are delivering value for money. So I, I think what, what we heard from her yesterday was, was we we're going to be starting from a principle that things should be insourced wherever possible. The um, Lansley uh, requirement to uh, Commission every service and put it out to tender uh, is is going, which uh, we, we we welcome, and hopefully there will actually be some savings in terms of actually not having to hire armies of lawyers and uh, fight off um, legal claims from uh, disappointed bidders. Uh, but there is also a danger that at the moment, what's replacing it is a blank piece of paper, and um, we don't want to see a repeat of what's happened over over the last last eighteen months. But I think we we. We start from a point actually that you've seen, if you compare how local authorities have, have handled test and trace and how private companies have test, handled test and trace, that actually uh, our public sector works and it works very well. And I think it, 
if we if we start from that model, if we give people certainty that actually they won't have to um, fight for retendering every every two or three years, it gives them a bit of a base to work from and actually hopefully drive out some efficiencies themselves as well. Great. Graham, could I come back on the, <clears throat> the diversity point? <clears throat> because I, I, I want to challenge what you've said, because <clears throat> the NH we all pay for the NHS, and the NHS is there for everybody. And free at the point of use is a really important principle, but actually free at the point of use only goes so far. And it's a sad case that many people in our country don't get an equal shot at access to care and they don't get equal outcomes. So for example, black women are four times more likely to die in childbirth and immediately afterwards than um, white, white women. And actually the NHS is, is there and has a, has a duty to serve everybody in our country. And actually if each organization has one person who's really trying to think about how to do that, then I think that's something we should really be proud of and champion and, and not fall for the rhetoric that that is um, wasted, wasted money because everybody deserves a good NHS. Great, uh, let's go back to the audience. I see a lot of hands up. There's a gentleman in the back, uh, black jacket. Uh, and then I see um, a woman at the front wearing a black and white spotted top uh, and a gent in the middle uh, wearing a suit. Apologies if I'm misdescribing your clothes. You do very well. Hi, I'm, I'm Steve Black. I'm from a company that runs one of the services to access your GP remotely, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to ask the productivity question. So in talking about what the NHS has to do in order to get through the, the waiting lists and get back to the state it was in well before the pandemic, we're focusing purely on we need to buy a lot more doctors, we need to buy a lot more beds. But I want to ask the question, is there more we should spend the extra money on that might improve the productivity of the doctors and nurses and beds that we've got and that might yield much bigger improvements in the system than the, just like getting more doctors who have the same productivity as the current doctors. And I'll throw one statistic into this, or maybe two statistics. When Andrew Lansley was interviewed by the Institute of Government, I think, recently, he boasted about saving 5.5 billion over a parliament because he sacked a whole bunch of managers, and that was going to the front line. What he didn't mention was the NHS performance of the headline performance numbers, the 18 weeks target, the A&E target, and quite a lot of others, started declining at that point and haven't picked up since. So maybe he should have not sacked all the managers. And the doctors didn't actually add a great deal more productivity to the system. Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Charlotte Nichols. I'm from the Stroke Association. Um, just to take a stroke-specific example, the NHS long-term plan has an ambition to um, increase the number of thrombectomies happening, which is a stroke um, clot retrieval treatment, uh, by ten, well, tenfold by next year. And we're way off. It's, it's not going to happen. Um, 
Yeah, mechanical thrombectomy is basically 100% cost effective um, because of its uh, enormous potential to uh, decrease um, disability after stroke. Um, it doesn't feel like there's any um, guarantee that it's going to be in the spending review um, coming up. And I just wondered how there must be so many examples of invest to save models and how it could really, really help um, within a few years. And I wondered the panel's advice on essentially how the NHS keeps in mind invest to save, where it's really worth it and where it will start producing results within a few years. Thank you. Hi, John Perryman from Carers UK. Um, I think it's just, I wanted to make the point that when we're talking about health and health and care provision and funding, it's important to note that uh, the majority of all carers provided by unpaid carers, 13.6 million unpaid carers, um, looking after family and friends, the value of the care that they provided estimated to be close to 200 billion pounds during the pandemic. Um, while vital that we obviously support the NHS and social care and give them the funding that they need, it's also crucial, we think, at Carers UK that the government puts in place more support for carers um, to enable them to continue caring safely, effectively, and to live a life beyond their caring responsibilities, um, including regular breaks, financial support, and ability and help to juggle paid work with their unpaid care. Would the panel agree that supporting carers is absolutely crucial to this wider picture? And what support do you think should be put in place to support carers going forward? Great, thank you for three really good questions, one on productivity, one on invest, save, and one on unpaid care. I spent an hour talking about any one of them. Um, perhaps if we start with productivity, I mean, Anita, where, where would you look uh, in the NHS if you were most trying to, if you were trying to maximise productivity? Uh, so we tend, I mean, I do think the point that management isn't an overhead Healthcare has, is a complex system with really important interdependencies. And there was, for example, a bit of a debate around the pay rise. Oh, should that only go to kind of frontline workers who've borne the brunt of uh, COVID? And uh, I did an interview about that. And I said, well, you know, what about the people who made sure that we actually got the oxygen? Yeah. yeah? Um, that kept people alive. You know, um, are they, you know, are they not? the front line as well uh, then you know and the system doesn't run itself and, and your fantastic example in, in in social care you could have a brilliant ward yeah but actually if the rest of the system isn't in place to properly and safely discharge somebody and make sure that they've got the occupational health and the physiotherapy and all of those services that they 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 need yeah then patients are stuck there that's bad for staff, bad for patients, bad for the taxpayer. So we have got to get away from the sense that actually, you know, a system could just run itself. Um, there are two areas, obviously, where um, we're most likely, well, three areas historically where we've got um, scope for productivity. One is, by and large, productivity in healthcare, like everywhere else, it comes from technology and all the things that Sarah and Gemma talked about. And um, and we're quite good at innovating the technology. We've got people who are very keen on it, who adopt it um, in pockets, but then we don't spread it. And that brings us to the second 
um, area where we've got a lot of opportunities, which is across the NHS, someone somewhere is doing something utterly amazing that is the future today. But by and large, yeah, um, what we're very slow at is spreading that. And we've got a lot of variation, which isn't really based on best practice. Um, and we need to get better at sharing, um, at sharing that. And then the third thing um, that we uh, um, really need to do is to think about the system and the pathways. This is one of these areas where people tend to go, oh, I'm economist, so I like productivity. Yeah, it matters to me. Most people out there and in the NHS, you know, think about quality and all of that. But actually, when you talk to staff about what are the real bugbears in their uh, work, and you talk to patients about what are their real bugbears, it's all the discontinuity of care, the, the you know, um, the not getting the test results back in time, not being able to get the, um, pay, the, 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 the services for patient before the operation meant that actually the, the operation was success. It's all of that um, management of, I mean, what in the jargon of healthcare is called pathways, yeah, and how we do uh, that, <clears throat> and getting that prevention spend in place, and getting serious about that. And I guess that's the reason why so many people in health policy talk about integration and being able to think system-wide. And that's part of the thinking behind the bill and the bits of the bill that the NHS has prompted. But the big risk with the bill is that we think that by changing the letters on the organisations and having new uh, uh, organisations, that that actually delivers that deep service integration. And I think um, if those organisations are freed up a bit to start to think really seriously about how you do this in local areas, um, then that would be great. If people think that in just restructuring the NHS, we've done it, then we will not get the productivity gains that we desperately need. Thanks, Anita. That's a solid rewarding. Um, Could I just chip in on, on, yeah. on productivity? I mean, I think there are some very interesting models uh, which are being trialled around the country. I'm thinking of Somerset, um, uh, which I, I visited from time to time. I, I go down there about every year because they're always doing something, something really interesting there. And they've set up this system of coaches. Now, a coach is an entirely new category of healthcare worker, mm. and they are not super, you know, skilled. They haven't, you know, undergone five years uh, training in medical school. But what they do is really connect with the people who the Somerset Health System has worked out from the data are the heaviest users of the system, the, the people who are the sickest, those with multiple morbidities. And they have had considerable success in reducing demand for hospital mm. care, um, which has got to be one key metric of mm. productivity. And also in Dorset, I saw a similar sort of thing where um, a GP said to me that she regarded herself as a navigator. And in fact, an awful lot of people who come to that practice will not see her they will be directed to, you know, a physio or a dietitian or a counsellor. And she insisted to me that they were fine with this, that the people had quite quickly got used to this. And when they did see her, because, you know, it was something that, that they did need to see a doctor for, they would come into her surgery and sort of say, oh, doctor, I hope I'm not, you know, using up your time. <laughs> they got kind of so well trained to think that the doctor was not their first port of call. So, um, so I think there are yeah just some some, some really interesting uh, sort of experiments going on out there. 
Well, thanks, sir. That's a really interesting example. Um, Gemma, I want to put this really interesting investor save question to you. Uh, there are all these brilliant things out there that no one can get funded. Why is it so difficult? Um, it's an excellent question. Um, this spending review should hopefully see a bit more of that sort of investor save happening in the sense that the Treasury is in theory implementing a new so-called public value framework. So thinking, whereas recent spending reviews have been much more about let's just haggle over the money, and that's been the big focus this time. In theory, um, they, the spending review debate should be, and the spending review submissions should be much more informed by thinking about what's the objective we're trying to achieve, what's the mechanism by which we think this money might achieve that outcome, and what are we going to measure once this policy starts to be implemented to understand whether it's having the impact that we want. Um, so that sort of thinking ought to help shift you towards thinking about, well, actually, if the, if the objective we want is good outcomes for stroke patients, wouldn't quite a cost-effective way of doing that be to go for thrombectomies? Um, so I, I'm hoping that we see much more of that in the outcome of the spending review. Um, one slight fear I have is that a lot of that, that there may not be a huge amount of transparency about those objectives and the measures that they're actually looking at. And I think more transparency about that would be really helpful to help people on the outside just actually start to scrutinise, did this work? Um, and, and if it didn't, actually, was that because we misunderstood how impactful this intervention could be? Or did we just need to do something a bit differently or devote a bit of extra resource to do it and we can just shift that over time? Mm -hmm. And then, Justin, I want to come to you on this unpaid care question, because, I mean, that 200 billion figure is very striking. That, that would be more than the annual public spend on NHS England. I mean, it, are, are we doing enough to recognise unpaid care? Well, um, I think... I think we probably all agree that we're not, are we? Um, and um, I think that uh, really, you know, the, the government have, have allowed that to, to develop and develop, and, and and they're relying on on people um, in in a way that probably is unsustainable because not only will um, it put more pressure on the system, but they, those who are doing the caring may also um, have. Um, have health issues in, in the long run because of the pressure that they're put under and, and it will, will um, basically mean we are creating a, a, a worse problem in the long run. And I think just, just to pick up on what uh, Anita said about the bill, there's nothing about carers in the bill. These integrated care systems have no, no statutory um, requirement to consult carers or patients. And that's something that really needs to change. Uh, I'm just going to, do you want to just come back. Great. Well, we're getting quite close to the end, but we may be able to just squeeze in, say, two more questions. Uh, so you want to raise your hand if you have another question to ask. Uh, I see kind of two people at the back, a uh, woman on the right and uh, someone on the left. Sorry, I can't see you for that. Hello, this is a question for Justin. Uh, my name is Jessica. I'm a journalist for Local Government Chronicle. Um, there's some uh, speculation at the moment that um, councils will be allowed to increase the referendum cap and... Um, so they'll, they'll increase the social care precept um, that appears on council tax bills. Um, and that's how they'll get around funding social care in the future. So just wanted to ask, I mean, this session is 
part of the title was how you how are you going to fund social care, but I haven't really heard much mentioned about that. Um, so, Justin, if you could answer, please, how exactly a Labour government would fund social care and also what you make of the potential alternative, which is to hike up council tax bills, essentially, um, and um, paying for it that way. Okay. Um, uh, sorry, Justin, should we just let the other question go first? Hello, Bob Davis. No expertise whatsoever in health care. But uh, past election agent and lots of experience of listening to dissatisfied uh, people. Now, a lot of what you've said is depressing. Uh, there, some of what needs to be said to the public will be received very negatively. It's bad news. Now, how can we keep the public on board in, in making some of the priorities? I, I'm, I'd like to draw your attention to what ha what's happened in Wales. At the start of uh, our uh, difficulties, um, there was a lot of uh, um, insistence that we gave the, the government a, a, a fair run. Uh, it's difficult. They leave them alone. Don't criticize. And there was a lot of antagonism to any suggestion the government was wrong. As it went on, uh, it became clear that Mark Drakeford in Wales had gained the, the trust of the majority of people. So my question to you is, does who gives the messages matter? And in which case, who should give the messages? Great, thank you very much. Um, Justin, uh, I'm gonna put that social care question to you first and then come to all of the panel on basically how we keep the public on board with a series of very difficult uh, trade-offs. Um, well, I'm gonna disappoint the, the question because I'm not gonna be setting fiscal policy this afternoon. Um, but I, I think my fear and suspicion is that it will all end up landing on council tax. Uh, I have, we have been asking specific questions of the government and what their um, assumptions are about uh, this precept uh, once the, the levy comes in. And um, basically they have said very little on the subject, which leads me to conclude actually that um, the actual general uh, pressures uh, and increases uh, in demands that we're seeing in social care will keep coming from uh, the uh, council tax precept and, and actually what what we're going to get to I think soon is a, is a, is a situation where that, that becomes unsustainable because it, it, it is a huge uh, expense on people and, and is an unfair, unfair tax. And, and just in terms of the messing, messaging, I think what we what we have seen over the last 18 months is that, that um, uh, quite a lot of politicians aren't, aren't trusted, but actually when you've got uh, people like Professor Bantam, Chris Whitty, all those people, they, they do they do hold the public's respect and attention and I think you know obviously there's been one or two examples where, where people took exception to what I say but they have been an exemplar of getting clear consistent uh, credible messages across and I think that's something we need to encourage great thanks um, Sarah if I come to you on a question of uh, how do we keep the public on board does who the messenger is matter I think it does, and I think, as Justin says, the government really has worked this out increasingly as the, the months have gone by. There's definitely been an uptick, I think, in po politician-free uh, news conferences from number 10 uh, in the last few months. I've noticed several occasions where, as you say, JBT, as well, I expect we all call him now, um, you know, and, and Chris Whitty, you know, have, have been alone 
giving crucial messages about um, the vaccine rollout, you know, the decision to extend or not, initially not to extend to 12 to 15 year olds. Um, and it's, they, they obviously, the government twigged that this needed to come across as being sort of untainted by politics, even if in reality there was some politics which had gone on in the background, that the, the, these were the, the messengers that, um, as you say, the people, the people would trust, because the last 18 months, I think, have been very, a very difficult time for all of our trust in government and governments around the world. A lot of countries haven't got this pandemic response entirely right. And the, the, the result has been to fray that, that bond of trust with government. So I think sticking to these, you know, at least apparently neutral spokespeople is, is very important. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, and Gemma, if you think about a question of public engagement. Um, gosh, <laughs> I think probably others are better placed than me uh, to talk about this. Um, I think it clearly does matter, going back to sort of how do we fund this, um, actually kind of having buy-in from the public that this is something that they want and they get benefit from matters, but then having the credibility to persuade people to pay their taxes um, to fund it as well. Um, I think to the the question of what resources are needed and the difficult choices that we've been getting at. I think there it's harder to think of health service leaders as being the ones who can deliver that message because inevitably in the public realm, actually, you tend to see health service leaders making the case for why we need more money for health services. And so ultimately, I think it does have to be politicians who give the difficult messages about why money is going to one place and not another place. Um, but to do that and have the public believe that you've made those choices for the right reasons, you have to have that credibility and trust with uh, politicians as well. Great. So I suppose the, the same question for you, Anita. Chris Whitty, JVT, Boris Johnson, Keir <laughs> Starmer, who should it be? So, I, I mean, I, I think um, it, it is clear that in in some areas, especially where you need um, you know, people to absolutely trust the scientific advice you need scientists. But actually, alongside the message, I think what we're going to need over the coming period, if the outcome, which I you know, desperately hope is true, true, it is Sarah's outcome that she talked about at the beginning, that, that really the pandemic has shown us um, as vividly as it's possible to imagine the importance of having a resilient public um, funded health um, uh, system and then building a resilient social care system. If actually that is the lesson that we um, uh, are to take from this, then what we need is a plan which very clearly shows people how we're going to recover from the legacy of the pandemic and is honest about the time and the effort that was taken. But that through that plan, what we will emerge with is a health and care system which is more resilient, which is a, a better system, which gives both staff and patients then confidence that it is worth both spending the money and going through the years of difficulty and challenge to build that um, more resilient service. You know, if you think of the last time that, that, that this was done in terms of waiting this, it took six years. We had an NHS um, uh, plan uh, with a workforce um, uh, plan that every organisation clear about uh, their role in it. 
We also, though, did have funding increases of over 6% a year above inflation. And at the moment, we're facing funding increases which are nowhere near that. Great. Well, thanks, Anita. Uh, with that, I'm going to bring the discussion to a close. Um, for those who want to read more about public services, particularly health services, I'd self-interested leave, recommend the Institute for Government's annual performance tracker. Next edition's out on Monday, the 18th of October. But also, do definitely check out the Health Foundation's Real Centre, which has absolutely wealth of interesting information about health and care data analysis and evaluation. It is a geek's paradise, and also for many other people. But yeah, thank you for all, all for attending. Thanks to those who asked questions, and thanks to our four speakers for a really good discussion.